Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, and today we're doing our second extra helpings for season four, episodes four to six. And we're going to start off with episode four, the Batavia stroke New Holland, but most importantly, that howler of a man, the Dutchman, Hieronymus Cornelis. And I believe, Paulie, you've got something to do with the roaring 40s we didn't touch on. Well, that's it. So, yeah, your man, Cornelis, that howler, you know, the, and the shipwreck that was the Batavia 1628. Now, as we said, those early Dutch trading expeditions to the East Indies, they really came across the roaring 40s by accident. But in the following centuries, especially, you know, once the Brits had established colonies in Australasia, uh, Navy captains mapped out new trade routes to deliberately drop down to the lower latitudes in search of the stronger winds. And by the 19th century, we're talking about the golden age, aren't we, Mm. of the the clippers, those great trade ships that would race around the high seas using all the trade winds. And as you say, we've got quite a few questions about um, the roaring 40s. And the first one being... Why were they the Roaring Forties? Why were these winds so strong? And I know this is going to involve maps and longitude and latitude. So, Paul, I'm going to throw it over to you, mate. That's right. Of course, we're talking, when we talk about Roaring Forties, we're talking latitude, aren't we? Yeah, the 40 degrees to the south on the way down to the South Pole, the Antarctic. And, of course, it's all that warm air that's been displaced um, from the equator that's going down right. into um, the Antarctic regions. And then when you throw in the Earth's rotation... Because, of course, the Earth is going eastwards, so it's dragging the winds with it, and these westerlies going eastwards. And the interesting thing for this part of the world, Mikey, is there's hardly any landmass to act as a windbreak. Yeah, you've got that tiny bit of Cape Horn with the Magellan Strait. But apart from that, it's just a clear run for these winds to go round and round and round, up to... 200 kilometres an hour. So I've got to ask, mate, are they still roaring? Well, yeah, that's a, a point that was made by, by one of the listeners, wasn't it, Mikey? If the, the actual peak band of wind has moved probably about two and a half degrees south since the golden age of the Clippers. Um, these days, because unfortunately of the ozone and the greenhouse gases, the Antarctic has warmed up and the roaring 40s have shifted downwards, southwards, and that's had several repercussions. I think the major one for us is that's one of the reasons why we get so less rain in Western Australia than we used to. That's exactly right. But I've got to be honest, Paul, when we say roaring 40s, I, I tend to think of cheese. <laughs> no, know, that, that fantastic breed that comes from that area. From, from King Island, that's right. Actually, mate, why don't we do a, an episode on cheese in the future? Like oh, an episode on the Grand Fromage. The Grand Fromage. Actually, I've got a great story about the Normandy invasion, but getting back to wind. Well, actually, that's not the only episode this might lead on to, Mikey. We've also been asked by one listener, not to forget about the furious 50s and the screaming 60s, which are even further south um, than the roaring 40s. And we're actually going to be touching on that in our first ever episode on the Antarctic, are we, in season five? Now, mate, the other thing we need to talk about is name changes. Because we were talking about the ship Batavia, which is on its way to... On its way to the port of Batavia, the city that was then the Dutch headquarters in the East Indies, what is now Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. And of course, 
that hasn't been the only change, has it? Particularly with names like New Holland, where although the Dutch came first, they were soon squeezed out by the British. Of course, the most famous example of that was New Amsterdam, which becomes New York. Right. And so one of the main questions we've been asked is, why didn't the Brits change the name New Zealand when they changed the name New Holland? Of course, nowadays you've got the campaign to change it to Otoroa. Excuse me for my Maori pronunciation on that one. But why did the Brits leave it as New Zealand for 200 years, whereas other places in the Pacific were very keen to change? Well, there's a precedent, mate. The the New Hebrides became Vanuatu. (laughs) They certainly did, Mike. And that takes me back to my children's holidays. We used to go to the old Hebrides, the outer Hebrides off Scotland, and you won't be surprised to hear it rain most of the time. And one year we found this beautiful atlas and it showed with all the pictures of all the rest of the world and we found the new Hebrides with this you know palm island and sunshine and coral reefs and we promised ourselves that one year we would get there so when I came down here to Australia it's probably the first place I made a beeline for. That's oh, a wonderful spot mate. Also too, while we're in the Pacific I want to talk about Papua New Guinea. Yes of course yeah very important isn't it you know, leaving aside the politics of Papua and West Papua you know, the actual name Guinea and New Guinea is really what was of interest to us wasn't it? Mate, and you know how bad I am at geography, but isn't Guinea part of West Africa? That's right, yeah, the Gulf of Guinea, isn't it? But unfortunately, the word originally comes from the Portuguese, which is the Guine, uh, which is their 15th century word, which typically was the word that they just gave to the black African peoples south of the Senegal River on that west coast of Africa, because they were slightly darker than the lighter Azanige, who were the peoples of the Sahel, which is that lower band across Sahara, the upper band of Sahara being the Maghreb, where the Berbers and the Moors lived, which yeah, the Europeans were a lot more familiar with. But as they got further down, typically they just relied on your know, lazy... I'm a racist. Yeah, lazy racist terms that anywhere where dark-coloured skinned people lived, they just instantly called it Guinea. And nowadays, unfortunately, you do still have Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, with its capital city. Further down, you've got Equatorial Guinea. And so when they came to the South Pacific, suddenly this new area of Papua was called Papua New Guinea because it was, in their opinion, the new land of the blacks. And of course, you know, typical Poms, they just didn't stop there. That's why we've got those two big islands, you know, the ones of New Britain and New Ireland, just sitting off the PNG coast. <laughs> right, yes, yeah, the whole European tradition of ignoring local names and imposing their own is not something we should be very proud of, although I would point out there is one stick uh, connected to this Mikey which is regularly used to beat the Brits and the other Europeans pretty much unfairly and that's the naming of the lands on the top northeast bit of South America facing the Caribbean. What? What's nowadays Guiana? Right Guiana you know French Guiana, Dutch Guiana or Suriname. Now for a long time it was thought Guiana was another copy or bastardization of Guinea or Guinea and again, it was just a lazy derogatory term um, because it, it was land inha- inhabited by black people. But actually, that Guyana is an indigenous Amerindian word and it actually means land of many waters. OK, so that brings us to episode five, which, of course, was your cadaver synod, wasn't it, with old Pope Formosus at the end of the ninth century? What really kicked off... Over a hundred years of 
bad popes, wasn't it? And it's the era that became known as the pornocracy of yes. popes, which yeah, t- quite tickled your fancy, Mike, and I think you found another. Yes, the pornocracy or the seculum obscurum, you know, quite, quite a long period of very bad popes. So I was doing a bit of reading and I found an absolute shocker. <laughs> a guy called Pope John Twelfth. Right. Uh, he was born Octavianus. Now, here's the thing. We're not quite sure whether he was 17 or 24 when he gets the papacy. Right. Well, see, the reason is, mate, we're not quite sure who his mum is. Ah. Two different women claim to be his mother. One is the wife of his father, mm. and the other one was his father's mistress. Ah. So depending on who claims to be his mum, he's either 17 or 24 when he becomes the sure. Pope. Uh, now, we've got to talk about his dad. Mm. Albrecht II of Spoleto. Now, you remember Spoleto from the... Ah, Guy Spoleto. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Spoleto family. Yeah, very powerful Roman family. So much so that when Octavianus was a boy, Albrecht was in the perfect position to ensure his son's ascension to the most powerful civic position in Rome, but also to that one day he'd become the most powerful man in Christendom. So in 955, actually in May 955 AD, mm. after Albrecht and Pope Agapetus II... You don't really hear much about the Agapetuses, do you? <laughs> no. Well, they've died. So Octavianus becomes not only Pope John the Twelfth, mm-hmm. but he also takes on the role of Princeps of Rome. Now, you know the word Princeps? Sure. It's an old Roman term, which roughly translates as most eminent. It's where we, where get, we get Prince from. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So this church role and this secular role become intertwined. But mm. More importantly, from the get-go, the guy is completely dreadful at both. Right. Totally unsuited for them. <laughs> And this puts him in trouble with, and here we go again, the Holy Roman Emperor. Ah, yes, yes, of course, that's what we were talking about in that episode, wasn't it? Sometimes allies, sometimes rivals, sometimes it's the Holy Roman Emperor appointing the Pope, sometimes it's the Pope appointing the Holy Roman Emperor, isn't it? But that was always going to be a a cause of friction. This is Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Now, this is is how he described old John XII. He was a man who passed his whole life in vanity and adultery. That's sort of weird because John had actually helped Otto rise to the Holy Roman Emperorship. Right. But once again, they're constantly... They turned on him. They, well, they're, they're constantly turning back and forth against each other. So much so that a guy called Leoprend of Cremona mm. is preparing a document for Otto about John the Twelfth, mm. And in doing so, he chronicles a whole bunch of accusations levelled against the Pope at the 963 AD Synod of Rome. Right. Now, these are accusations against Pope John the Twelfth. Right. I'm going to quote here. Then rising up, the cardinal priest testified that he himself had seen John XII celebrate Mass without taking communion. (sighs) Big no-no. John, Bishop of Narni, and another John, a cardinal deacon, professed that they themselves had seen the deacon being ordained in a horse stable, but they were (sighs) unsure of the time. Benedict, a cardinal deacon with other co-deacons and priests, said that they knew for certain that the Pope had been paid to ordain bishops, specifically that he had ordained a 10-year-old bishop in the city of Todi. Now, this is actually true. Honestly, mate, Pope John XII had actually ordained a child, a 10-year-old child, as part of a political move for his family. Remember, Mm. he's a Spoleto. Yes. And, mate, the uh, the crimes weren't just ecclesiastical. Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. Leoprend isn't done by old Johnny Boy yet. I'm going to read again. They testified about his adultery, Mm. which they did not see with their own eyes, but nonetheless were pretty certain it happened. <laughs> he had fornicated with the widow of Rainier, mm. with Stefan, a woman, his father's concubine. I should hasten to add that this isn't the woman that was his mother. Oh, so it's not quite incest. No, not quite incest, no. No, but also too that he had sex with the widow Anna and... Oh, and with his own niece. So oh, actually, he's not. He's it not, is incest. Yeah, yeah. And that also, too, he had made the sacred palace into a whorehouse. 
Ah, well, that goes back to what we were saying in the episode, wasn't it, about the Pope running all the brothels in Rome and taxing them? Yeah, you're right. The Pope used to tax the brothels in Rome. But he's not done with Johnny Boy yet. Leopold then goes on to list a few more of Pope John XII's crimes, and they're pretty ugly. They said that he had gone hunting publicly. Well, I really don't care about that, but apparently that mattered a lot to them. Yeah. But how about this? That he had blinded his confessor, Benedict, and thereafter Benedict had died, and that he had killed John. It seemed to be a lot of Johns. A lot of Johns, yeah. 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 He had killed John after castrating him, girded on a sword, and that the Pope had put on a helmet and a cuirass, which is a type of body plate armour, mm-hmm. which is apparently is a big no-no for the Pope to dress up as a soldier. Although, as we were saying, because he was head of the papal states, they actually did end up going into battle, didn't they? As long, not quite as often as they went to church, but it was almost that way. Oh, mate, don't worry, there are battles coming. But then they get back into the old ecumenical crimes. Ah. All clerics, as well as laymen, declared that he, this is Pope John XII, yep. had toasted the devil with wine. Toasted the devil with wine. They Ooh. said that when playing dice, he invoked Jupiter, Venus, and other demons. Because ah, you have to remember the, the Roman pagan. gods. Yes, they were considered demons. They even said he did not celebrate matins, which is a form of vigil. <laughs> well, you're, you're the Catholic, mate. You should know that one. I, I never went as far as matins, mate. But he didn't do it at the proper canonical hours. Right. But here's the big one. Nor did he make the sign of the cross. Ooh. Now, Leopold was certainly no fan of the young Pope. He actively hated him. But it's bizarre to me that, you know, the blind castration and murder could casually listen along with all the other lesser crimes like going hunting. <laughs> yeah. Now, as I said before, he was preparing this report for the Holy Roman Emperor Otto the First. Otto, yeah. Yeah. Now, as I said, Otto and Pope John the Twelfth had a very fractious relationship. In fact, it went on for years. Mm. There, there were battles going back and forward. The two men would often declare uneasy truces. Mm-hmm. At one point, they'd try and depose each other, wouldn't they? Yeah, and Otto threatened to put another pope on the throne, and he was basically about to invade Rome when Pope John the Twelfth did the fortunate thing. He died. He died in 964 AD. And guess how the Pope died, mate? Go on. Well, there are two stories. Fornicating. Yes, there are two stories. One is that he actually had a stroke while having sex with a married noblewoman. Oh, dear. The other is that the husband of the noblewoman beat John to death when he discovered the two of them in bed together. Mate, take your pick. It's not good either way. But here's the weird thing, mate, when we're talking about bad popes. He gets replaced by Pope Leo VII. And Leo VII, a year afterwards, he has a stroke while in bed with a married woman. (laughs) All right, okay, so that's the end of episode five. And we haven't even touched on one of those questions we got um, on the socials about the Pope Joan legend, which is tied in to John the Twelfth. But to be honest, Mike, I want to leave the legends out of this. Let's stick with the history, because we're talking popes and we haven't even talked the Borgias yet. Mate, that's going to be a whole episode. Which brings us to our sixth episode in season four, which was the, the festive special. The many myths of Christmas. And, mate, we barely scratched the surface. Well, that's right, Mikey, because we almost got snowed under, didn't we, with all the different messages on Twitter and Facebook. Because the parallels that we were drawing, you know, I tried to explain that there was a sort of amalgamation, wasn't there, between the St. Nicholas religious figure um, in the Christian church and then the old father Winter Father Time the figure. Old, the old pagan, pagan figure, yeah. They came together to produce what we call Father Christmas or Santa Claus today. And to be honest, Mikey, the more you look, the more you find, because there's also the parallels with the medieval 
king of Christmas. It was like this sort of game, parlour game they used to play at court where they'd have sort of joshing and sword bouts, but it was all a bit of merrymaking and whoever won would be appointed to be the king of Christmas that year. It was a sort of lord of misrule type of character and, and even the lords of misrule in the medieval plays would sometimes be called Captain Christmas or Prince Christmas. Actually, mate, that reminds me of something I studied at uni, not medieval, a bit later, but... Didn't Ben Johnson write a Christmas play? That's right, yeah. Christmas His Mass, didn't he? The beginning um, of the 17th century. And obviously that's a bit more of a, a fun <laughs> play than one of his tragedies. I mean, because those Jacobean tragedies were very bloody dark. But it does have a character called the Christmas Lord, doesn't it? And that really sets off a tradition which builds right through to the 19th century, even drawing on figures such as the ancient Green Man. And then you've got literature like Thomas Harvey's Book of Christmas from 1836. And in many ways, these 19th century books tie in all the different threads that we were talking about. For example, like I said, Thomas Harvey, he describes the, the Father Time, Father Christmas figure as this. He says, Old Father Christmas, at the head of his numerous and uproarious family, might ride his goat. Oh, go yeah, Remember we were talking, we're talking about, about it wasn't yeah, always yeah. a reindeer, could have been a horse, could have been a goat. He would ride his goat through the streets of the city in the lanes of the village but he dismounted to sit for some few moments by each man's hearth. Oh, the chimney. Which is where the chimney thing comes in. He comes down the chimney and you've got to leave out a wee dram for Santa or some carrots for, for the reindeers. And while some one or another of his merry sons would break away to visit the remote farmhouses or show their laughing faces at many a poor man's door. And if you look at the illustrations on these kind of books, ah. Mikey, you really get to see the picture of this sort of you know, white-bearded, almost magician wizard, you know, with dressed in the long robes and crowned in holly. And you can see all the traditions of Santa Claus and St. Nicholas and Father Christmas coming together perfectly in that 19th century. And if we're talking 19th century and we're talking Christmas, it, it comes to a peak with yeah, the most famous thing of all, you know, Charles. Dickens. Of course, Dickens, yeah, with the Christmas Carol. And it's very much so, isn't it? Yeah, the ghost in Christmas Carol is exactly the sort of figure, the old man winter, that's been portrayed all over Europe for the previous centuries. And it's worth remembering there, isn't it, Mikey, that up until the 19th century, mm. you know, Christmas was very much an adult festival. You know, it was all about adult feasting and merrymaking and Twelfth Night and that kind of thing. It was only really with people like Dickens in the Victorian era that suddenly Christmas became more celebrated by and certain designed for children. Oh, thank you, Tiny Tim. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And we're off to the Americas to look at an ancient civilization. And it's not the Aztecs, it's not the Inca. We're going to have a look at the Maya. Mm-hmm. 